cultures trump strategy every single time. Um, the, the best uh, carefully crafted uh, highfalutin strategy in the world without the culture to mobilize, execute, and bring to life that strategy is, uh, well, a fancy three-ring document and a binder on some shelf somewhere, I suppose. Welcome to The Unconventional Path, Secrets to Igniting Your Business with Bela and Mike. I'm Bela Musitz, the David D. Ray Professor of Innovation and Entrepreneurship at Clarkson University in upstate New York. And I'm Mike Wasserman, Professor of International Management at the University of Applied Sciences in Münster, Germany. This podcast is about conversations with successful entrepreneurs you've never heard of who have built successful businesses you have never heard of. Businesses and entrepreneurs that we can all identify with. In each episode, I think we try to capture and share the essence of how interesting people often take unconventional paths to build their businesses. So we decided to interview a wide range of business people that have found and taken unconventional paths in their careers. And what we hope to do is capture some lessons, advice, inspiration that'll help you attain your entrepreneurial goals. So join us for interesting conversations and discussions with what we think are really inspiring guests on how you can ignite your business by exploring some of the many less traveled unconventional paths that lie ahead. So if you like the podcast, please tell your friends and give us a review on your favorite podcasting application. If you have suggestions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Please send us an email at bela.and.mike at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, Mike. So what'd you think of uh, this interview we did with uh, Dave Kruzlicki, the retired CEO at Glens Falls Hospital? Well, I thought it was great. Uh, the first important point that I saw was really the importance of breadth and visibility, the importance of being able to see the forest. This was a guy that had great vision and understanding of, uh, of healthcare from a really high level. And he got that at a young age, at a very young age. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. He talked about his first job was really gave him the foundation for understanding how the hospital works because he was sort of in operations, uh, which is just a great foundation and overview of how an organization works and really understanding because that's something you're really going to need if you're going to take on a larger responsible role. Uh, just a, a little quick background with Dave. Uh, so on how I met him. So I was actually on the board of trustees uh, at Glens Falls Hospital when Dave was the CEO. And so I got to see him in action for six years and was very impressed and uh, have kept up the relationship ever since. And actually, Dave uh, lectures for us uh, on occasion. He's a guest lecturer in our health MBA program at Clarkson University. So uh, he has branched out into teaching uh, a little bit as a guest lecturer, and he always does a great job because he has wonderful, wonderful stories about healthcare, uh, as we'll hear uh, in this interview. The other thing I thought that was very interesting that he mentioned was that the challenges and opportunities in healthcare and how data analytics has become much more important than it was in the past and how they've really uh, woken up to the importance of customer service. Uh, it's something that they really didn't think a lot about maybe 30 years ago, but now they realize uh, at healthcare is just like any other service business where you need to uh, interact and communicate uh, with your customer. What other things struck you in our conversation with David? I liked how David framed the increase in complexity in the healthcare system right now and how that's really creating a lot of change. And I think when you're inside the healthcare industry and you see all this complexity, it elicits some fear uh, of the unknown and, okay, it's just another layer of tasks that I have to accomplish and another layer of barriers uh, between me and my goals. But I always like to see these increases in complexity as opportunities for entrepreneurs to come in and solve problems in new and unique ways. Now, healthcare is fairly highly regulated and it's a very complex system. 
Um, but to me, a lot of the things that I heard him say really spurred these ideas. Wow, there's really some cool opportunities here. So I think that I think that was kind of cool. But that was always those always entail some risk. Yeah. Speaking of risk, what do you think about uh, when he talked about this notion of uh, accepting a job you're really not qualified for? I love it. Every job that I've taken, I always spend at least the first three years or four years thinking I'm really not qualified for this job and looking in the mirror and saying, how did I get here and why am I I here? Uh, I think that um, that this ability to have the self-confidence to jump in with both feet to something that you are scared that you don't know enough about to do a good job is fantastic. And I think it's great advice for a lot of people. Uh, that it's okay to get in a little over your head. That's how you learn to swim better, right? When the waters are a little choppy, um, you, you can you can really improve your game. So I thought that was really fascinating how time and time again in Dave's career, he talked about, I took a job that I wasn't qualified for, but I made it. Sometimes it works out in, in David's case and sometimes it doesn't. And I think that's okay. Um, but it's almost like, I think it's neat to give people permission to to take these risks and to, to dive in and to learn as much as they can. And, and more times than not, you're going to swim, not sink. Yeah, I agree. And I think it, it, it's I like to think about it not from the terms of not being qualified, but from the terms of accepting and moving forward and, and going into an area that you don't know much about. Right. So you're exploring and you're learning. Uh, and I think that's one of the key characteristics of an entrepreneur. But if you think about starting a business, you really don't know what's around the corner. And that reflects, I think, in Dave's career choices and his willingness to accept uh, the unknown and and saying to himself, oh, I've done this job 100 times, so now I'm just going to do it in a bigger organization versus I haven't done anything like this in my past at all, but I'm willing to try it. And it goes to that self-confidence that you talked about. Um, as well as, I think, this sort of mental attitude to say, it's okay. And um, I, I want to I explore that new opportunity. Yeah, humans are learners by nature, right? And the brain is elastic and the brain can learn no matter how old you get, right? It's never, you're never too old to learn something new. And whether it's uh, some knowledge in a content area or whether it's skills, how to do things, um, I think motivation and energy and um, and the ability to get people around you, uh, build a team, get people, uh, the ability for you to get people around you motivated and point in a great direction, um, means that what you don't know shouldn't stop you. It should just be goals that you set to, to move forward. Yeah, I agree. So let's, uh, let's listen in, uh, to this interview I did with Dave and, uh, hopefully you guys will enjoy it as much as I did. Hello and welcome. I'm Balaam Usitz. My guest today is David Kruzlinki, who is the retired CEO from Glens Falls Hospital. Welcome, David. Thank you, Balaam. It's great to be here. So, David, uh, if I recall, you started fairly early in your career at Glens Falls Hospital, uh, almost uh, as, as a pretty junior-level person, and you worked your way up all the way to CEO. Tell me a little bit about that experience and path. Very true. I was there a long time, just shy of 35 years in total. And the path... Uh, I guess it was kind of very drifted around, moved in different directions, not terribly straight or linear. Um, maybe a little bit um, atypical in that respect. And it, I guess I have to say, too, it didn't follow a precise plan. Like a lot of career paths, it was subject to a constant process of learning, more than a little bit of good luck and fortitude at certain times. And uh, it's, it's been most enjoyable. Uh, when I uh, initially secured my MBA, which was a, a really valuable credential. It's, uh, oddly enough, I was hired by Saratoga Hospital as their very first ever director of personnel, mm -hmm. of which I knew nothing about. <laughs> but if they were willing to take a shot with a kid that didn't know much about that field, but was committed to working hard, learning all the time, and doing everything within uh, his capabilities to make a positive difference, I was too. And so... Uh, we did that, and it was, it was a fascinating year and a half of learning. Shortly after I was there, uh, I had the opportunity to move up the road a little bit to Glens Falls. Actually, my mentor from my MBA program had some familiarity with people up there, made a connection. And I went up there and did what I was trained to do, actually, academically trained. Uh, industrial engineering, management engineering, a lot of workflow studies and things like that, which was in addition to learning about 
people from the HR point of view was probably the next best way to learn about how does the hospital work anyway? And the flow of EKGs to patient throughput from the ER to an inpatient unit and everything in between. Oh, what a wonderful education. Uh, still within Glens Falls, I had the opportunity then to begin to be responsible for some different departments and areas. Uh, we had a contractual relationship with a small rural facility in northwestern Saratoga County at the time. And after a few years of paying your dues at Glens Falls and this other area, you were kind of shipped over there. And so I, I got to be the CEO of a small rural place um, with all that that involved, but still tethered to the mothership. Mm. Was this an outpatient only or was that No, it was, just, it was a complete... Article 28 approved inpatient hospital, small, 35 beds, of which our census was probably in the 20s on any given day. Um, six or eight physicians. Um, it's, it's closed in the late 80s, like many hospitals yeah. have throughout the state. But at the time, it was fairly thriving, and you got to exercise and learn all about being the CEO in this little somewhat microscopic laboratory, all the while running over the mountain to, what do I do now, what do I do now? And there were a lot of those. Um, but then I ran out of kind of jobs at Glens Falls uh, after a few years of doing that and having a wonderful time of learning. There wasn't a whole lot of other places to move to and not a lot of motion and change within the, the structure of the hospital at Glens Falls. And again, by luck, um, I had the opportunity to move down to Blue Cross Blue Shield of uh, Northeastern New York and Albany as a Vice President of Provider Affairs. That was a role of intermediary, if you will, with all the doctors and the hospitals, actually all the healthcare providers home care agencies and the like, uh, and the insurer. Uh, I was there for all of nine months, not very long at all, pretty much to warm up the seat and that sort of thing. Because uh, after just a short while down there, the CEO of Clemson Falls gave me a call and said, you know, we're changing CFOs, chief financial officers, and I'd like you to come back. Much as I love Glens Falls and enjoyed my years there and would love to go back, I still felt compelled to point out to him that um, I wasn't an accountant. <laughs> Probably didn't have the credentials right. to do that job. Yeah. Was flattered he thought of me. He had an interesting insight, which I've tried to keep in my mind over the years. He laughed and he said, yeah, I, I know that's not your forte. <laughs> but he said, here's the deal. Uh, DRGs, diagnostic-related groups, uh, we're moving from the world of reimbursement to the world of prepaid dollars for specific services. Volume's still a big deal, but... It was different, substantially different. Yes. And he said, I'm not sure I understand this whole new world of DRGs. And he said, I don't want uh, a green visor, with all due respect to CPAs, of which I have immense respect for. I, I don't want one of those at the helm. He said, I'm going to give you a checkbook, and you hire the CPAs. God, they're important. But he said, I want a generalist to change the way our finance function works. Because it was all centralized within the realm of our reimbursement guru. He completed the cost reports, and he made the numbers sing every year, and we'd get our reimbursement dollar on the dollar. Or if we did a real good job, he did a real good job, we'd get dollar five or dollar ten back, right. legitimately and fairly. But that's all changed in the stroke of a pen in January of 1983. So with that kind of a charge, expectation, I was thrilled and came back. Uh, once again, not really qualified to do what I was doing, but having a ball learning yeah. and having an impact and... A few years later, he said, I think we want to make you COO. And, and he said, you know, I'm going to be retiring in a few years. I think you should have an opportunity. And he said, I'm not going to be involved with that selection, but uh, I'm going to see if I can get you exposed to the board, at least to get to know you a little bit. And I wasn't even sure I wanted the job, to be honest with you. I was enjoying what I was doing. It was a lot of fun. And I was learning and growing, and that was good enough for me. He did retire, as he said he would. And um, uh, sort of late in the game, I decided to throw my hat in the ring. And, yeah. Things worked out from there. A quarter century later, I said, well, maybe I should retire from that. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. You had a first job in HR. Yeah. Right? And then from there to operations. Yeah. And then a mini CEO, sort of, yeah, right? Mini, a small, yeah. small uh, hospital. And then uh, CFO. Yeah. And in between, you, you worked at an insurer. Yeah. So that's a really kind of a broad set of backgrounds, which I can imagine for being a CEO of a hospital in this complex kind of system that it must survive in is really important to have those various different exposures. You're right. It, it is. And, and I have to confess, I didn't appreciate it at the time, the, the, you know, the benefit I was deriving by having those different exposures. But you're right. It, it, it was a tremendous learning experience and laid a nice platform or foundation for my years of leadership. Uh, hence, yeah. that was good. 
And, and so over this period of time, how has the complexities of, of a hospital changed? Dramatically. Uh, more complex, not less complex. Uh, the factors and variables that go into the effective and efficient operation of a healthcare organization have just multiplied. Uh, why? Uh, partly due to the ever-ending growth of regulations and external requirements, uh, government or payer or just general community and societal. Uh, secondly, technology, like in any other field, I suppose, just keeps marching forward, uh, becoming incredibly more powerful and usually beneficial but complicated and perplexing sometimes in how to uh, pay for and acquire the technology, how to assimilate and meld it into business operations so that it maximally, uh, in a healthcare organization, there's not a lot of room for experimentation in, in that regard. So uh, between technology, regulation, uh, increased awareness of healthcare costs across the spectrum, from consumers to media to government, Employers, you can't pick up a newspaper or watch the news nowadays on almost any given day and not read about the challenges of health care, particularly from a cost point of view. So it became more and more complex, but I have to say, more and more exciting and fascinating at the same time. It's a Rubik's Cube of all Rubik's Cubes. <laughs> so Glens Falls Hospital serves probably thousands of square miles of, of catchment basin, I guess. Correct. And... and uh, it's a rural hospital. And so how does that environment kind of, what kind of obligations does an environment like that present to you, uh, particularly versus sort of more of an urban yep. hospital where there's five or six hospitals within 10 miles of each other? Yep. Right? Hey, you're absolutely right. It is, it is an atypical organization because of, uh, by a fluke of geography, it is the largest healthcare organization between Albany and Montreal, Canada. We serve a very large geography, as you've mentioned. Our primary service area which is defined as that healthcare provider that the majority of people in that geography go to. It's broken down by, it might be zip code or mm -hmm. some other civil district, um, where they go to. And by that, our primary service area encompasses a little over 2,600 square miles. They're part of five counties, Warren, Washington County, Northern Saratoga, Essex, and Hamilton. Now, in truth, some of those areas are not an awful lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> For all that expanse of geography, our Primary service area includes maybe 160,000 people approximately. In the summertime, tourist season, it grows substantially. But there are many urban hospitals of our scope and size and dimension that have that population within you know, 15, 20 blocks of their building. So that did make a certain specialness about the place in terms of its responsibility and privilege to the community. Uh, it's all about access. How do we make our services most accessible to people when, in some instances, uh, they're an hour and a half drive from the hospital? So as a result, over the years, we've purposefully moved a number of satellite programs out to facilities throughout the region we serve. Uh, we have some 28 different satellite facilities, part of Glens Falls Hospital, downtown Glens Falls, but scattered throughout those 2,600 square miles. 18 of those are physician practices or health centers. Uh, the remainder are um, lab draw stations, physical therapy, outposts, um, mental health and behavioral health programs and services, where oftentimes transportation is a real issue for the patients and, and the clients we serve. So we try to be as accessible as possible to that broad-ranging geography. Um, the second aspect is that there's no hospital across town, as you mentioned. There's not a saint something or other down the street that we can say, go down, knock on their door, and say, you know what? We've looked at our obstetrical services every which way to Sunday, and, and we're just financially dying on that. And how about instead of us both doing that, you do obstetrical, we'll do pediatrics. Mm -hmm. Can we rationalize yes. our services so there's not much redundancy? We didn't have that opportunity because, again, by a fluke of geography, we were it. We are the safety net for a huge expanse of geography. So from a governance level, from a management level, from a physician responsibility level, from a community level, responsibility for having a broad scope of services, services that are clinically, have high clinical integrity, that are quality, not just to be all things to all people, but it needs to be a broad safety yeah. net for people. I, I can remember an anecdote that... Uh, in the summer of 1978, I'd only been at the hospital maybe a week. And the fellow I worked for reported to the president of the hospital. So 
this vice president who was my boss said, you know, I'd really like to spend, you know, a little time getting to know the president of the hospital. So I don't know about you, but, you know, first week on a job, I was right. nervous and quite no way around. And then we're going to go meet the top guy, a little nervous about that. So I can remember so vividly sitting at a table, not dissimilar to this one, and we're kind of chatting away and I'm trying to make conversation. He's asking about my background. In the middle of the conversation, a woman knocks on the door. And she says, excuse me, can I interrupt, Bill? She knew Bill. And she said, can I interrupt for just a second? And he said, oh, sure, come on in. He knew Mary. Her name was Mary. And, in fact, we used to joke afterwards because he turned to me. Now, you're here a week. You're the new guy in the block. It's the and he turns to me and he says, is it okay if Mary comes in? <laughs> so what are you going to say? For a second, I thought, maybe I should tell Mary to get out. No. <laughs> I think Mary can come right in. Right. That'd be fine. Right. Mary had a scrap of paper. This is pre-smartphones and all the rest. And she pushed it across the table up, Bill. And she said, Bill, you know, I'm doing a little homework. Did you know that there's seven people in our region that are on renal dialysis? The hospital didn't provide dialysis services in the summer of 1978. There was not a nephrologist on the medical staff. And she said, here's their names and phone numbers. Didn't have email addresses in those days. She said, and they range from Indian Lake, which is quite a ways away, to downtown Glens Falls and everything in between. Seven people. And what she said there told me a lot about the uniqueness of Glens Falls Hospital, and to some degree hospitals, but particularly a hospital that's in a rural area. She didn't say, you know, Bill, we're doing some research, and uh, dialysis is profitable. I think if you start a dialysis service, you're going to turn a nifty profit. Probably the return is going to be a year and a half. It's peeling. She didn't say, uh, Bill, what a neat marketing opportunity. I mean, I can see the headlines now. Glens Falls Hospital grows again. Right. She didn't say, uh, hey, Bill, what a neat feather in your cap. Bill Fillion leads a new program. She didn't say any of those things. She simply stood there and said, no, Bill, don't we have a responsibility to these people? Because if they don't come here, they're going to Albany or Burlington. In many cases, hour and a half, two-hour drive, mm-hmm. two times a week. You can't take a couple weeks off from dialysis and say, no one do it anymore. Every other day. And what he said, so that was her question, responsibility. You know, I'm thinking, where in the marketing plan and the strategic plan and the financial performance does that fit? It's loud and clear. And, and, and Bill said, hey, you're right, Mary, I think we do. Um, make a long story a little bit longer, a year and a half later, we recruited our first nephrologist, first and only in those days. Um, we converted a retired physician's office across the street from the ER into a dialysis center. And those seven people were securing services there and avoiding the additional drive to Burlington, Vermont, or right. Albany. Um, we haven't had the privilege to be able to do that on every single service across the board, but that's really been our North Star for 115 years, yeah. is what can we do that makes sense to be responsive to the community? Um, many urban hospitals, uh, and I'm not making light of what they do at all, but they have a little more flexibility in that regard. They can sit down with their neighbor across the street, albeit they may be a competitor, and at least say, how can we rationalize things right. here? Uh, I've always been there 35 years and 24 as CEO. I'm always looking for another place that's like us so I can kick their tires and learn from them. And it's hard to find one exactly like Glens Falls. The closest I've come to is in a town about an hour north of Kansas City, say Joseph, Missouri, one hospital town, uh, sort of a rural geography, similar population, and uh, the struggle and, our, our, and benefit the same kind of challenges. So uh, I think it makes us a better place, yeah. makes board management physicians a better place because it puts responsibility right out there center stage. So, so how do you, you know, in a hospital you have a lot of forces tugging you in a different direction. Yeah. Right? You have regulators, uh, you have the physicians, you have employees, you have yeah. patients, you have the community. So strategically, when you come up with a decision of, are we going to provide this new service or not that we think the community needs, how do you balance all those forces, particularly given the economics of what's going on? Yep. So from a strategic perspective as CEO, how do you approach a problem like that? I wish there were a logarithm or a formula we could simply just plug in some numbers and the answer would spit out at us. It, it, it's not quite that simple. We begin by trying to take an analytic viewpoint to the whole thing. We look at other providers that might provide that or a very similar service. We look at substitute services. Maybe a transportation service can provide the essential access without duplicating a service itself right here in Glens Falls and avoiding a lot of capital costs and other operating costs while still getting to the essence of delivering the service. Uh, we look at, frankly, the, the financial performance. We look at the opportunity for fundraising to help underwrite and subsidize a certain program or service that might 
be of particular appeal to the population or even a segment of the population. And, and then we sit down and we look at the menu and the array of other programs and services we provide and how many are financial gains and how many are financial losses. It's a fairly sizable list in the latter category. And we do our best subjective analysis. This is where community board comes in and weighs in heavily. And because that, that, that's where those kind of rationing, the word we don't always like to use in healthcare, but yeah, it happens. And that's where we make some of those rationing decisions. Fortunately, we've not had to do that too many times over the years. We've done it in the area of a pain management program. You and I had spoken about that. Yeah. You were on the board at that time. Yes. Um, we did it in the, uh, with a patient transportation service. We, for a number of years, given that geography, had uh, several vans and buses on the road that would transport patients to uh, needed care, and uh, we couldn't carry that any longer. Right. So we've had to belly up to that from time to time. It's as much subjective as it is quantitative. Yeah. So as, as CEO, you get involved in hiring individuals, yep. building the team. Yep. So what are some of the characteristics you look for when you're, when you're trying to fill out a, a team of either people who report directly to you or, or further on within the organization? Yeah. I have a, a list of 10 or so that are really, really essential. So part of those have to do with uh, abilities and talents and knowledge base. Um, some of those simply have to do with one's character and attitude. And they might be not terribly dissimilar from any business organization, actually, to tell you the truth. When we're looking for an executive as, as a leader, we, we first look to see if the person knows and, and understands the difference between management and leadership. Uh, they are different. They're very, very closely tied to one another. Uh, there's a lot of crosswalk between the two as well, but, but they are a little bit different. And, and we want to be sure an executive is able to understand and, and apply um, the best discipline of both of those. We also look for um, someone that's able to apply analytic skills. That's, you were asking earlier about changes in healthcare delivery. That's a big one that I've seen over the years. Um, the need for some sophisticated understanding of analytics is more pronounced today than, than and I've ever seen it before. Partly because um, the tools are available for us to look at problems through that lens that maybe we didn't have those tools years ago. Um, another reason might be because so many of the challenges, whether they're rationing challenges or otherwise, are enormously complex, and analytic tools help us uh, wade through that and dissect those variables so we can understand them better, weigh them better, and come out to a, a better decision in, in, in the end. But analytic skills and disciplined decision-making in terms of focus on um, that deductive reasoning that comes from um, uh, analytics skills is, uh, is, is essential. Uh, another one has to do with communication skills. Mm. Because you know, a healthcare organization is uh, basically people. I, I, I remind, for 24 years, reminded new employees at orientation, which I, I attended every month, that in, I got lots of cards and letters from patients and family members, many, many, and 99% of them are, are a delight and honor to read. 1% is oral tough to read. <laughs> but uh, I've never received, in all the hundreds, probably thousands of cards and letters I've gotten, Never gotten one that said, uh, uh, Dear Dave, uh, last week my life changed. I was told by my doctor that I had cancer on Tuesday. Wednesday I met my medical oncologist. My treatments began on Thursday. Uh, that radiation therapy you need you have in a cancer center is really slick. Glad we have it. <laughs> Nobody's ever written me a letter like that. Nobody said, uh, I had a heart attack last week. My life changed. Uh, one hour I was walking along okay. Three hours later I'm in your cat lab. Just before they began the procedure, I made a point to look around the room, and man, that sophisticated technology is impressive. Glad we have it. Mm -hmm. I never got that card either. <laughs> what I do get every day is, I was diagnosed with cancer last week. I was frightened like I've never been frightened before. When I walked into your cancer center, I felt compassion, I felt cared for, I felt I was safe. Those are the human experiences that that is all about, and that's why communications on my short list of what we look for in executives. Because if one can't communicate, and it begins with listening. Mm -hmm. It's the first and most important communication skills by my bias. Um, that, that, that's absolutely required. Some of the attitude and character uh, attributes we look for are um, a quest to constant learn. I mean, as you know and as we've talked, the industry, healthcare is changing so rapidly. 
one has to not only be adaptable to go with that, but to thirst for it, want to ride that learning, whether it's about technology, new techniques and care, the changing economics, consumer expectations, payer changes, take your pick. One has to be not only tolerant of learning, but love it and desire it and look for it every day and every morning. Uh, another is obviously basic, kind of goes hand in hand with communication, respect and dignity. You would think that, so yeah, everybody has that, but not so much, <laughs> not so much. And that has to be has to be just part of you. It's not something you put on in the morning. It's it's right. it's in you when you go to bed. It's in you when you get up. It's there all the time. Resourcefulness. We look for that in our executives because uh, it, it's a topsy turvy game in healthcare. There's a lot of unpredictables. Uh, the world can change in a second, and what you thought was predictable all of a sudden isn't. That's true not only in the clinical arena in terms of patient care, when a diagnosis and a treatment plan doesn't work out the way it's expected to but also on the management side as well. It's not all predictable. So one has to be nimble, agile, resourceful, and be able to move and adapt and change with, with the tide of things. Uh, stay resolute and focused on their goal and objective, but uh, also be willing to adapt in, in, in the quest to getting there at the end. Right. And, and lastly, in executives, we look for one to be present. Um, one interpretation of that is to be visible, be out and about. Don't, don't be wedded to your desk and your computer screen and so on and so forth. But be out and about because people not need not only that uh, visible presence, but they, they need the support and encouragement that your presence brings. It, it also means it, it being present in terms of being conscious of the moment of where we are. Uh, we have to constantly be thinking of one foot in tomorrow, one foot in next year, one foot in terms of the future design of what we're building. But we need to be absolutely conscious of where we are today. And that's what I mean by being yeah. present as well. But it's a healthy list. And... Not everybody has it, and uh, uh, we're lucky if we can find it in some executives. Thankfully, over the years, we've found that at Clunz Falls. Yeah. So as I was listening to you to go down that list, many of those uh, words that you were using sort of uh, spoke to me from, from the perspective of you're building a culture. Yeah. Right? And you're yeah. really building sort of an environment and an ecosystem and a culture yep. within this organization. So how do you think about building culture, and how do you, how do you propagate it? How do you maintain it over time? How do you modify it a little bit when, when it drifts off where you want it to be? Yeah, great question. And I'm, I'm an advocate or a believer anyway of that old adage, cultures trump strategy every single time. Um, the, the best uh, carefully crafted uh, highfalutin strategy in the world without the culture to mobilize, execute, and bring to life that strategy is, uh, well, a fancy three-ring document uh, binder on some shelf somewhere, I suppose. We, uh, uh, and, and I agree with you, culture always exist, and also culture can be purposefully created, and it can be purposefully renewed. Uh, we actually embarked a number of years ago on an on a effort to renew the culture. We chose that word carefully, renew, because even the, the nomenclature you choose is carefully. Saying, We're going to have a new culture here. And when you work with a lot of folks that have been there a long time, so well, what happened to the old culture? What was wrong with that? They do something wrong yesterday? Right. Right. So... The world is in a state of constant renewal. We as individual human beings are in a state of constant renewal. So we propose to the organization, all 2,700, 2,800 of us and 350 positions and 800 volunteers, maybe it's in our best interest and most importantly our patients and community's best interest if we purposefully renew our culture. And we talked about the environment, the pressures, the opportunities, what we're good at, where maybe we can strengthen ourselves. And we came up with a definition. We had all kinds of work groups and focus groups and engagement conversations and notes that we spread throughout the place. I'm sure some were studied carefully and bought into and others were thrown aside. But the point was we went through this process of mm. engagement. Uh, community forums, if you will, town hall meetings and a lot of those said, here's what we're hearing with our own viewpoint and what we're hearing from you at the front lines of caring for people of the culture that will maximally represent healthcare today and tomorrow for our community and our patients. And it was around the things that wouldn't surprise you. It was around some of those things we, we just talked about. So how do we raise the bar? How do we accelerate our excellence at delivering every one of those things? We introduced a whole bunch of levers to move. Mm -hmm. One is to create standards of performance. So you know, yeah, we want to be responsive to one another and to patients. Where do we find responsiveness? Well, being nice to people and greeting people by their name answering the telephone when they call, getting back to them. So we started measuring those simple little things. How often do we, we, we created secret shoppers? And we go through the hospital, employees, you know, hire people, do employees that on their breaks and mm -hmm. so forth go around secret shop. And they say, you know, 
I went through the gate, she'd be talking, nobody's at a low. Nobody's at a low. And I sat in the lobby and I watched people come in and sign up for their blood tests and nobody said hello. So we would sit down with them and say, you know, how does it feel to you if you walked in, you were scared and yeah. frightened? And they said, oh, that wouldn't feel so good. But it, it becomes second nature because we do it thousands of times a day. So we'd role play, we'd work through it, and that department would start saying, good morning, Mrs. Jones, my name is whatever, and, and so forth. Rudimentary, basic blocking right. and tackling. We do it department by department, we communicate forever. We created, at the backside, celebrations. And we always had reward and recognition programs like every organization does. But we lasered in on these kinds of standards of performance expectations and the measurements. So when a department <laughs> answered the phone in the first three rings, 100% of the time over the course of a month, they had a party. Yeah. We celebrated that. And the folks in the ER are glad that the people in the lab answered in three rings because it was important to them because they had a line of patients in there. Right. So we celebrated that, and we told the world, in our hospital world, well, I did a fantastic thing last month. Jim Collins, in Good to Great, talks about the flywheel. And what we did in our little corner of the world in Glens Falls, New York, is try to get that flywheel of culture turning. Yes. And um, it's a constant, never-ending quest. I'd like to tell you that it catches, yeah. and then you can sit back and say, yeah, but it doesn't. You're turning it all the time. Yeah. So it sounds like, from what you're describing to me, that... that um, you guys just didn't talk about culture. You had a plan yep. and, and implemented that plan yep. to build and maintain that culture. Exactly. It's hard work. Yeah, it's hard work. It takes a detailed plan. Hard work. Now, I think as CEO, you've been involved, very much involved outside of the hospital, in the community, in Haney's professional organizations. Right. So how important are those types of activities within the life of a CEO? Really important. Because a hospital, to a large, such a large degree, is... A, uh, a function of, a victim of its external environment, policy-wise, regulatory-wise. So much of our livelihood as an organization comes about from Medicare, Medicaid, yes. the rules and regulations and policies around those two major payer programs. If you're not listening carefully or even better, involved in the dialogue of Medicare, which happens in Washington, and Medicaid, which largely happens in Albany, uh, you, you run the risk of simply being a pawn on the board and bouncing around to the vagaries of the regulations. I mean, those things happen anyway. Yes. But we always felt at Glens Falls it was important to have a seat at the table and express the needs of rural hospitals like us in those policy discussions. On a personal level, I found it extremely beneficial because, again, being at one place for a long time, I always worried about getting so myopic that I didn't have the diverse experience of how they do at St. Joe's and what about Memorial? How do they do this? So I, every time I went to one of those meetings, I would do my best to pick the brains of my colleagues and peers about, you know, what, what are they doing on service line development? What are they doing on strategy? What's the, what do they find about culture? You know, what's, what's the biggest struggles on culture, and how do you maximize that? And tell me about where you find the best executives. So it was always a great learning experience for me. And I think in the long term, it's benefited the hospital by connecting us to some of those activities. Yeah, wonderful. I know you've also done some teaching. I did. Uh, at, at several different uh, institutions. So what's sort of your motivation for teaching? What are the rewards that you get out of that? Well, I suppose it's, it's more than a little bit selfish, to tell you the truth. Uh, I, I just love it because uh, I learn every time I interact with, with students. Their, uh, their, their curiosity is, is just uh, tantalizing to me. It makes me think about things that I may have taken for granted or just frankly not even thought about. Mm -hmm. So I love their questions. I love their curiosity. I love their wonderment. And, and, and I find just sharing some of my experiences and hearing myself, I'm learning from myself sometimes. I said, gee, you know, until I verbalized that, until I enunciated that little experience, I, I didn't quite capture in my own consciousness what that meant to me or what I learned from that until I was trying to communicate it to someone else. So from a selfish point of view, I find it stimulating and just plain old lot of fun. Um, secondarily, I guess in, in, I've been very, very fortunate in my life and, and in my career by having met with and worked with so many talented Excellent people, many I would call mentors. Mm -hmm. And in, in one small way, as an expression of, I guess, gratitude to the universe, uh, I, it's a little way to give back. Yeah, yeah. If I can help uh, a, a person looking to advance in this field, as I have been helped by others, it seems like only the right thing to do. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to come down here and chat with me, David. I've enjoyed it. Yeah. Thank you, Bailey. Thank you.
Well, Bella, that was a really interesting interview with David. I found it fascinating. Uh, one of the first things that really struck me um, was the nonlinear path that David followed in his career. He got his foot in the door, got a good break, uh, and then he figured things out as he went. It's often said that you should follow your passion, but I think a lot of people, especially just starting out in their career, don't know what that passion is, and they're waiting for it to strike and say, ah, here's my passion. David was a good example of somebody who just went out and explored and found things, uh, and his passion evolved out of that. What's your take on this? I mean, is, have you ever told people to go find their passion, or do you think this exploration and this this uh, looking at different topics and different fields and different parts of a business are, is the better route? So, you know, I, I think that's a real interesting point. And uh, l- let me try to share with you sort of how I think about this, right? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw a little bit of an analogy here. So I, I think there's sort of three different potential opportunities you get in your life or, or three different categories of opportunities. Think of it as doors. Sometimes there's a door in front of you and that door is locked. You cannot unlock the door. You cannot go through it for whatever reasons, right? It's just maybe you want to, but you can't, right? Then there's another set of doors or another door that's wide open and you can see what's on the other side and you have clarity on what's on the other side. And and if you walk through it, you know what's coming next. And then there's sort of the door that I think is the most intriguing door. It's unlocked. It may be even open just a little bit and you can sort of get a little clue of what's on the other side possibly but not very good clue and I think this is the doors that David walked through right he was willing to take that risk of knowing hey you know I don't think I'm qualified for this job but I'm going to try to I'm going to take it I'm going to accept it because I know when I'm done whether I'm successful or not I'm going to learn a whole bunch of new stuff I'm going to get a whole bunch of new skills that I can then use to build on for my next opportunity. So I think that's really the, the, the mindset of an entrepreneur because you have to think about your career entrepreneurially, if that's a word, uh, because that's you, you got to be willing to take those risks. You got to be willing to walk through those doors uh, where you don't really know what's on the other side. So that's sort of how I think about it. That leads me to another question, Bela. When should you walk away from a job you enjoy for a potentially valuable learning experience in a new part of the organization or with a new company? So, you know, this again comes down to a lot of personal choice, right? Some some people only want to walk through doors where they see what's on the other side. Other people want to walk through doors where they may not see what's on the other side. And I think this is very similar. And again, one's not better than the other. They're just different. I think the notion of once you get comfortable in a job... Some people love that. They like that repeatability. They like the sort of knowing what's coming tomorrow and knowing what's coming the day after. Other people get bored. And the ones that get bored are the ones that walk away often from jobs that they're comfortable with. So for each of us, we need to kind of figure out what works for us. I know what works for me. Right? I get bored really easily. So if you look at my career, I've done a whole bunch of different things and most of them for some time period of three to five years. And then I move on and do something different. Uh, For other people, the right thing for them is do it for their whole career. My father-in-law worked in one job for one company fundamentally for his whole career. And he loved it. It was great. And he was very successful at it. And so, again, there's no right or wrong, but I think one of the interesting things with with David was his willingness to try jobs that he thought he was unqualified for and to walk away from something he thought he was doing well to go try something new. Yeah, and I think we've both seen plenty of examples where that works. So if it's something, if one of our listeners is contemplating this and saying, oh, should I or shouldn't I, know that, yes, there is a risk, but you and I, I'm sure between the two of us can think of 50 examples of people who did this. And even if it didn't work out in the short run, it worked out in the long run, right? They met people, they made connections, they learned things. 
Um, so yeah, it's personal, but it can work. Um, I have, you know, two types of friends, right? Ones who are like you, who have kind of jumped from career to career and industry to industry and job to job and others that have stayed, um, their whole career with one company and certainly in one industry. And there isn't one right way, but don't not make a change because of fear. That's, I think the important thing, or because you think you can't do it, um, which is interesting. I agree. It, it needs to fit with your with your own mental psyche, though, right? You have to be comfortable, or at least have some level of comfort in in doing that. Yeah. And some of it is financial. I mean, I tell a lot of my students, I I and I have done this myself. Is I try to have one year that I can live off of in the bank. And I know this is hard for a lot of people, and it took me a long time to get to that point. But once you have enough money that you can pay your bills for one year, right? That gives you a little cushion if you want to take a risk and say, hey, screw this. I'm going to go try something different. You can support yourself if it doesn't work out, right? Um, my partner and I, my wife, she and I always try to live on one salary so that one of us can quit at any one, any given time. And again, I know not everybody can be in that situation, but there are financial strategies like this where you can say, okay, I will, I will, ha- I will work to build a cushion so that maybe I can't do this right now if I'm at this stage in my life. But my goal is in five or 10 years that I can be at that stage where I can financially take that risk, um, where I can take a job with a startup for a year and know that I can, if they can't make payroll, I can support myself or my partner or I can quit our job and try something. Um, and we can, and we can at least, um, pay our basic fixed costs. So there's some interesting strategies there that people can think about. Yeah, I, I agree. I think one of the things that, that a strategy like the one you just mentioned allows us to do is it enables us not to be prisoners in our job. Because if you're if you don't have that cushion, and again, it, it takes some diligence and some discipline to build a cushion like that, but it gives you a great amount of freedom of action. So you can you can make decisions on on jobs and positions and your passion that are not a hundred percent financially driven. And once once you're in that position it's it's really really a, a wonderful great position to be in. Man, interesting. Let's switch gears. Let's talk a little bit about the healthcare industry because I thought there were some fascinating nuggets of information in what David was saying. What did you take away from David's conversations about how healthcare evolved during his time in the business? Yeah, I thought I thought this was good. You know, he really talked about this notion of the importance of data and being able to understand what's hidden in the data, not just from an operations perspective, but from a customer service perspective, from a performance perspective, um, and how 30 years ago, you know, all the data was on sheets of paper, and it was like almost impossible to analyze. And nowadays, they're collecting all sorts of data, um, and having the skill set to be able to analyze that data is a very, very basic fundamental skill set that he said he was looking for in new employees, if you remember. When, we, when he talked about this notion of what does he look for when he's hiring people, he that was front and center. This ability to understand data and understand how to utilize it uh, to improve the operations and efficiency uh, and effectiveness and efficacy of of the healthcare is really, really important. Yeah, it strikes me that I think if you'd have asked me a decade ago, and I have some familiarity with healthcare, is that, oh, well, what does a healthcare system, a, a hospital consist of? And you say, oh, radiology, emergency room, obstetrics, uh, hematology, and oncology, and all the different units. But now it's really, yeah, there's the medical core, but then around this is information systems and data analytics is customer service and marketing, right? And uh, and human capital and talent management and how healthcare operations have become much more cross-disciplinary and much more focused on these multiple outcomes that you really do need an MBA, like you said, to really be an effective healthcare administrator and to really see it. You need the MBA and you need some healthcare understanding of, uh, I think, the core business um, to, to really become a, a great leader. But I think that leads to all kinds of cool entrepreneurial opportunities um, because of this new need for marketing and this new need for data analytics and this new need for human capital management in the healthcare situation. It's a huge growing part of the economy. 
Um, and it really has been transformed over the last 10 years or so, I think, not from the te technology of medicine itself, but from running a hospital as a business. Yeah, I think it, it really shows that uh, healthcare has many, many similarities to other businesses as well, because we all know how data has become important across the spectrum of businesses, right? Whether you're in financial services, whether you're in retail, um, and all businesses have now uh, realized the importance of data and understanding the data as performance indicators of how their business is operating. And also think about performance indicators of what, what level of job you're doing to provide good service and value to your customer. Uh, and, you know, healthcare is sort of interesting in that at least in the United States, the way our system is set up here, uh, oftentimes you're not the one directly paying for the services that the healthcare system is providing you. And I think that has made the healthcare organization sometimes in the past, maybe not necessarily focus as much as they should on the customer or the patient in this case. And I think that's another thing Dave talked about is that they've really awoken to the importance of customer service and that they really are in a service business and the importance of little things, just like identifying yourself, uh, introducing yourself when you walk into a patient's room uh, for doctors or nurses or whatever, and, and letting them know what's going to happen next and communicating. And remember, he talked about communication skills being really important as well. And this is sort of how it links into that. So I thought that was really interesting, uh, this notion of customer service and how it's sort of... Um, risen up into a higher level of priority than it has been in the past. What do you think about the nature of community hospitals in general? Now, you know, we know there's these big giant healthcare systems in the major metropolitan areas, but a big chunk of people in the U.S. get their healthcare from these small regional hospitals. How do you see these small regional hospitals fitting into entrepreneurship and innovation in terms of the ability for people to go in and make a difference. Yeah, I thought this part of, of Dave's comments was was fascinating. You know, we always talk about, uh, and, and Friedman wrote a book about this, right? The world is flat, right? One businesses of my favorites. Yeah, businesses today have this ability to sell throughout the world uh, and, and customers, access to customers, et cetera. Well, if you think about it, at a community hospital, you have a very sort of fixed, finite, geographically constrained business, right? At Glens Falls Hospital, which is a small community in upstate New York, you're, you're going to get patients from within 75, 100 miles. That's it. So I think it gives you, number one, an opportunity to focus on that, to meet the needs of those customers, because your customer set is well-defined. It sort of gives you in many ways, an obligation to that community, right? And Dave talked about this as well. The, the notion of this obligation of community service. Uh, and it's interesting, it, it's, there's not a lot of other, you know, sort of businesses that overtly have to do that. There's many businesses that, you know, we give 5% of profits to the environment or, you know, many of them have taken this uh, this charge. You know, we donate five percent of our of our profits to the to the food pantry or et cetera, right? So a lot of businesses have done this as a way of demonstrating their commitment to the community. But Dave talked about it as within his business, it's a requirement, right? And he gave that great example of when when someone walked into his office and said, "Hey, you know, there's there's five people." in our community that have to drive an hour and a half each way three times a week to go on kidney dialysis because we don't provide that here at Glens Falls Hospital. So they have to drive to Albany. And, and this notion of saying, you know what, we as a community hospital need to provide that service. And that's the most important thing. And the profit and whether we make money at it or not is important, but it's not as critical as you might think. Right. So I just thought balancing this sort of community service profitability equation 
uh, is certainly another level of complexity that a business, like many community-focused businesses have, not-for-profits have that, right? So it's not unusual, but um, it's certainly not one that that I totally understood uh, before I was on the board and I got to see it, uh, many examples of it and, and conversations at the board. Are we going to provide this service? Are we not going to provide this service? Um, so it's really interesting. It's a nice look into decision-making when you are a, a small regional business in that, yeah, for big companies, corporate social responsibility is often an afterthought. It's a tack-on. It's an add-on. It's, yeah, we're going to do this with this profit. And if you can start to make decisions about the community wrapped into your core mission and your core strategies and you can see it as an integrated whole, I think you lead to win-win outcomes. You lead to – you have a healthier, happier community base, more satisfaction – um, more people willing to come to your hospital and partake of your services. I think the employees see what you're committed to and they're willing to go the extra mile. And I think the stakeholders, ultimately the, the, the shareholders or the community owners see that, yeah, this is a commitment. So I think this is a long-term view uh, that really is uh, appropriate and important for, I think, all entrepreneurs who are embedded in a community to think about. It's great stuff. And as you were saying that, Mike, it got me to thinking about what this enables you to do is really build that community and that feeling of family, I'll use that word, or community. And that's when people are willing to do things because they feel like they belong, right? They, they belong to something and they identify with, with this organization or this community. And, and when something happens to other members of that community, they're willing to step up. Uh, from a geeky standpoint, I mean, the... This is commitment and this is engagement. And when you hear about workers being committed to their organization or being engaged with the organization or customers being committed to their organization and having loyalty and customers engaging with the organization so that they're both giving and receiving value, um, this is exactly what we're talking about. And I think uh, you made the point in the opening, Vela, that um, it's culture, right, that Culture trumps strategy every time and creating this culture from this ability to weave the community's needs into the fabric of your strategy, I think is just a critical piece of what David had to say. And it was something that I personally took a lot away from and I hope our, our listeners did as well. I think that uh, my observation here, and I was on the board when they did some of these things, was that not only as a CEO did Dave talk about the importance of culture, they actually did something about it. So they actually put a program together. He did a cultural renewal. Remember, he talked about, we're going to renew our culture. It wasn't, we're going to have a new culture, right? We're not throwing out the old one, but we're just renewing our culture. And that was a, a program that they put together, if I remember correctly. It lasted about 18 months, and it involved all levels of the organization. So my hat was really off to him, and I respect that a lot because... I think many CEOs talk about the importance of culture, but Dave actually did something about it, right? They recognize the importance of it. And in keeping it in the forefront of people's minds as, as they do their, their daily job. Um, so I, I think that was also just a, a great kind of value of, of Dave's comments was around the importance of culture and how it trumps strategy every time, right? Because if you don't have a good culture, it doesn't matter what your strategy is because you're not going to be able to implement it. I agree. That was great, Bella. Thanks for bringing David in here and putting him on the hot seat. Uh, we really, we looked at everything from his individual experiences from the beginnings of his career, the nonlinear path he took, the risks he took, the jobs he jumped into that he didn't think was qualified for, and then the culmination of all these experiences as a really great CEO of a very important uh, community-based health organization that really did see the value of culture and community, uh, the value of engaging multiple stakeholders, including the community, including the employees, including the board, uh, and really making an organization successful. Uh, it's a blueprint for success. It's it's, uh, I think, a good embodiment of the road less traveled that we like to talk about. Here's somebody who did things a little bit differently um, and I think is a really great role model. So thanks for bringing him in. That was a great summary, Mike. Thanks. Folks, I hope you really like this uh, podcast. We've enjoyed uh, putting these together for you. If you like them, please give us a positive review in iTunes or whatever uh, podcast 
feed system you subscribe to. If you have suggestions for us, feel free to email us at bela.and.mike at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.